From 1955 to 1975, the United States military was involved in a conflict known as the Vietnam War. Over the course of that conflict, those, those almost 20 years, 58,300 U.S. soldiers were killed or are still missing in action. But that was just a drop in the bucket because over a million Vietnamese, both North and South, civilian and military, died in that conflict. And that's not to mention those in the neighboring countries of Cambodia and, and Laos. The U.S. involvement was, was questioned throughout the conflict. Obviously, you've seen movies, protests, you know, all the, all the different things where people were, you know, questioning the, the, the U.S.'s involvement in this. And after the, the fall of what was then Saigon, when the U.S. pulled out of the country, admitting their defeat and leaving South Vietnam to the communist rule of the North, the question that many had was, you know, what was the point of all of that. I mean, obviously in the time period, it was stopping the spread of communism, you know, allying with another democratic country in South Vietnam. But at the end, what did all of that gain? What was the purpose? All of those lives lost in that conflict only to there have been a defeat and the, the mission failed. In the face of tragedy in our own lives or difficulties that we're facing, things that have gone wrong, we often ask a similar question of why or what's even the purpose? What's the purpose for my life? What's the the purpose for this tragedy or this disaster? And our minds, just as humans, we're always looking to make sense of what we're experiencing. And oftentimes there, there's a hope that, you know, everything happens for a reason or, you know, there's some purpose behind everything that we are going through in our lives. And then it's not just a futile effort that led to more chaos or destruction. We're in the middle of a series uh, that's called For This Purpose I Was Born. And we're looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Specifically, the last four chapters that deal with what happened to Jesus in those last moments of his life on earth, before his crucifixion, and then after that. We're trying to answer the question of, what was the point of Jesus? I mean, what's the big deal about him? What was his purpose, if there was any at all? The question that we want to ask today as we approach a passage about the crucifixion is, what's even the point of Jesus' death? I mean, why did Jesus die? Was there a, was there a point to that? Was it just another, another bummer that a kind of a, a righteous person that was preaching good stuff about loving your enemies, they got killed off by the man, and then history rolled on? Was there a deeper purpose in Jesus dying? Did he have to die? Did he see that as such? And is there a chance that the death of a Jewish man almost 2,000 years ago could have some significance or purpose for my own life? So to answer that question, we're going to turn to John chapter 19. 
We're picking up the story right where we left off last week with Jesus before Pontius Pilate, a Roman ruler of that time in kind of that area called Judea. So we're going to start in verse 19, and it says that Jesus was just handed over by Pilate to be crucified. And in verse 19, the second half, it says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was just on the outside. So they saw it. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek, so that everyone could read what it said. Right? So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And we see in this first glimpse of the crucifixion a conflict about who is king. So Pilate's goal is to show the Jews who's the boss. When they came to him and wanted to crucify Jesus, he in no way wanted to give to their demands. He's the Roman authority, the conquering empire that has imposed its will on this nation of Jews. The only reason he gives into their demands is because they kind of spin it back on him and say, hey, this man's saying he's a king, then you're no friend of Caesar's. Because we only have one king, and that's Caesar. This is what the Jews say to him. And so the reason that he gives in, as we saw last week, is that self, pure self-interest. He doesn't want to get back to Caesar that somehow he didn't you know, take care of some up-and-coming Messiah that was going to oppose the Roman Empire. So in this last little twist, just to stick it to the Jews a little bit, he writes this sign that says, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the king of the Jews, and look what we do to kings. We hang them on crosses, we strip them naked, we humiliate them, we torture them, and we crucify them until they're dead and gone. Pilate is pushing this agenda that Rome is king, that Caesar is king, that the the common phrase back in the day that Caesar is Lord. He's pushing that even in this sign. So yes, okay, he says, fine, I give in to your demands, but this is what we do to your king's Jews. Now, the Jews hate the rule of the Romans. They're looking, they've been waiting for years for some Messiah to come and liberate them as a people and bring them out of this, this state of exile that they've been in. Now, they were originally conquered and brought into exile by another nation, the Babylonians, and before that, the Assyrians. But they're waiting for these promises that were spoken to their prophets and their religion and their, and their scriptures that one would someday come and rule on this throne of this guy named David. It was like their, their best king. And so they're, they're totally anti-Rome. They're looking for someone to come and overthrow it, which is why they don't want the sign to read, 
the king of the Jews. It's making them look bad. The irony here is that what Pilate says is actually true. Right? What I have written, I have written. The irony is that Jesus is actually not just a king, but the king. He is the true king, and he shows what a true king is like in what he is doing on the cross. But his kingdom, as we saw last week, as he tells Pilate, that his kingdom is not the same as the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom is a different kingdom. His agenda is a different agenda. His methods are a different method. And he showcases the method of his kingdom by submitting to the wicked and evil men. He does not resist an evil person practicing what he preaches on the Sermon on the Mount. He's showing the agenda of a different kingdom. You see, the Jews, hey, they were the holy people, right? They were, they were the good guys. But Jesus is showing, hey, you've got the promises, you've got the scriptures, but your agenda and your, your kingdom is all wrong, as are your methods. And their methods in this are, are clear. They wanted to oppose by physical violence and force against Rome. And then they use that against Jesus as well. And obviously, that's how the Roman Empire operated as well. A conquering force. As we've been seeing in this series, the truth of the Bible is that Jesus came so that we could know God. And in this first picture, we see Jesus revealing what God is like and what his kingdom is like and what his methods are like. His method is love, not violence. His agenda is similar in that he wants to spark a revolution that will spread over the whole earth or conquer, but his conquering is not through violence, it's through love. Jesus' death is an ultimate picture of that in submitting to these wicked people, showing the methods of God's kingdom. Right? Without resorting to what they were doing. We mentioned the Vietnam War. In the Vietnam War, there were two sides competing, two agendas, two worldviews, right? Communism and democracy. North Vietnamese and then the Viet Cong were allied with Russia and China, amongst maybe some others. And the U.S., I believe, had Australia and a couple other countries that were, that were helping South Vietnam. Right? It was this communist agenda pushing down from the north, right? And this U.S., you know, democracy is the way that's going to save, you know, this country, now, whatever you think about, you know, whatever, however way you lean in those, in those, you know, ideologies, the kingdom of God is a completely different agenda than both of those. And let me tell you, the only hope for Vietnam is not democracy. It is Jesus. It is the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross, which is the way of love. 
That is the only hope for Vietnam and for the world. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. They said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. Then for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Another contrast here of what's happening around Jesus Two kingdoms, two stances, two agendas. Now it gets a little more personal. It's not nations or groups of people. It's individuals. What do the soldiers do? They just take Jesus' stuff. It's all he's got left. They strip him naked. They take his, his tunic, which is kind of the undergarment, and then his garments, they divide it. And John records this for one purpose, to show that, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. Like, this is what the Old Testament Scriptures were pointing to. He's trying to highlight it for the Jews so that they'll, they'll get it and not reject Jesus. But this is also connected to a really significant passage. This thing, that, this verse that he quotes, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots, is from a, a, a passage called Psalm 22 in the Old Testament. It's actually a psalm that Jesus himself referenced while on the cross. You may be familiar with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, depending on what you think about that statement, anytime you referenced a psalm in that time period, you didn't say Psalm 22. You said the first line of the psalm. And anyone knew, everyone knew you were referencing the entire psalm. I point that out to say that, that this verse that, that uh, John is saying, they divided my garments among them for my clothing, they cast lots. It's, it's a psalm of David. He's describing how all these people that are, that are after him are oppressing him, these enemies, in these different ways he's using you know, a metaphor, an allegory to explain what he's experiencing. But it somehow happens exactly like that to Jesus. But the end of the psalm, if you read the whole thing and don't just look at the first line where it seems like Jesus is forsaken by God, it goes on to say that God has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And then at the end it says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For he has done it. So even in this picture of the Roman guards stealing, right, having their own agenda of domination in that moment, we see the picture into the, what Jesus is, submission to wickedness is accomplishing. That God has not forsaken him. That he is going to redeem him and raise him again from the dead. And that that agenda of love will spread to all nations, for he has done it. 
So in that picture that's happening with the Romans, we see Jesus' mother, amongst others, or Mary Magdalene, and John is there, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And even on the cross, while he's hanging there in agony, Jesus remembers his mother. He was the oldest. He would have been the responsible one to take care of mom. It's assumed that his father was, had been long dead at this point, Joseph. And Jesus is thinking, he's acting out love, even in a moment of extreme suffering. It's incredible, right? The guards were right there. They probably would have been able to figure out, oh, there's Jesus' mother. Let's go give him, let's go give her Jesus' things. I mean, wouldn't you think that? You know, you think about, you know, gosh, maybe you don't think about executions very often, but, you know, they usually don't take your stuff too. Like they would pass that on to the next, you know, probably next of kin or whatever. You just see the extreme, right? They're just taking everything they can away from him. And here's Jesus in the opposite spirit showing us what God is like. Even when he is suffering extreme abuse, torture, and about to die, he's thinking of the other. He's taking care of those around him. The question for us is, which world are we a part of? Which agenda is the agenda that we're following? Is it pure self-interest like Pilate? Is there a place for us to examine that today? Jesus is calling us to the agenda of loving those around us, which goes contrary to the agenda of most governments. Right? And often even our own heart. So we had a baby two weeks ago tonight, or early tomorrow morning. And yesterday, we, a number of you have been giving us meals. It's been awesome. The fridge is full, and there's lots of leftovers. I love that. Yesterday, we had a friend drop off um, a meal to the house, and they've been friends of ours for a long time. And her and her husband have just become uh, foster parents. They have two children of their own, and they're starting to, to um, take care of some foster kids. And in the conversation after uh, this woman, who's a friend of ours, was in the car, we were just kind of talking about how it's going for them and how it's going for us with the new baby. And she just made the comment of, yeah, you know, just never realized how selfish I was till I got married. And that was nothing once I had kids. I never realized how much of my life was about my own agenda, about what I need, what I want, you know, me, me, me. And when you become married or when you have kids, a lot of that has to die because there goes your time, right? The point again is, right? The agenda of Jesus and his kingdom is an agenda of laying your life down for others. Following Jesus looks like laying your life down for other people. Loving God, the Bible says, looks like loving the people around you. That that is your agenda. That's God's agenda. Verse 28. After this, knowing all that was now finished, Jesus said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to his mouth. Jesus had received the sour wine. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished at that moment? I mean, it's pretty weird to think about his death as some kind of a victory like we're celebrating today. What did, what did Jesus actually complete in that moment? Jesus came so that we could know God. That is why he came. And in that moment, he finished the work that was necessary for us to enter into a relationship with God. That's what it meant. Now, it's kind of weird. I mean, that he dies and that somehow gives us a relationship. So let me see if I can tease this out for you a little bit. The first thing that's interesting is that it says that Jesus gave up his spirit. He said this, and then he gave up his spirit. I mean, I guess you could just say he died, but it doesn't say then he died. It says he gave up his spirit. It's almost as if John is wanting to say at any moment, Jesus could have just been like, and popped all the nails out of his arms and like floated down from the cross and called a gazillion angels and wiped out the Romans and just been like, I am the Messiah. What's up? It's, it's, like, it's like at any moment he could have just said no to this whole thing. He says earlier in John 18, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. He said that. He's, this is Jesus. I'm reading. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I mean, if he can calm the storm, if he can heal at any, you know, heal people, he certainly can just, you know, if he can, if he can tell Peter, go fishing, and there'll be a coin in the fish's mouth, and you can pay the tax. I mean, come on. He, he even went to the point of submission where he said, and now I am giving up my life. The work is done. Again, he's following the way that he preached. I tell you, do not resist an evil person, right? Turning the other cheek. So somehow in submitting to death, to dying, there was something important there that had to happen with Jesus' death. He talks about it leading up to that. In all the Gospels, he's saying, I have to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. His death is somehow important. It's, it's some, there's something significant about that. So in it, he's showing this agenda of God's kingdom, this agenda of love, this agenda of nonviolence, this agenda of how his followers will now follow him, right? And, and working that through the entire earth. But, he, but, he, but did he have to die to do that? Well, he, Jesus fully identifies and experiences the human condition, a fallen human condition in his death. Without dying, he doesn't fully experience everything that humans experience, which is death itself. You know, he suffers, he undergoes the abuse, torture, but even to the point of death. And in that, he gains 
access to death. He accesses death in order to defeat it as a human. He takes victory over the evil somehow by submitting to it. It's the total reversal. Let's keep going and read this last section. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day because it was in the middle of uh, the Passover, that night they would have celebrated. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs may be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Likely the the person that John is referring to here about the testimony is himself because he was standing there right alongside of Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene. And so he makes a big deal to state all of this, the fact that Jesus actually died. He's saying, he's taking the time to say, listen, this is true. Like, I was there, I saw it. He was dead, but then they stuck a spear in him. The blood flowed out, water came out. I guess there's some scientific thing about what that could mean. I've read about it before. I couldn't, I'm not a scientist. John probably didn't even know that back then, but he's dead is what John is saying. I saw it with my own eyes. Now, for John, the point was he is writing against, uh, in, in one purpose of his writing is writing against this group called the Gnostics who believe that Jesus did not come in the flesh. He was kind of like God that came down and kind of like appeared, kind of like a man or something, but he wasn't really a full human. And John is saying, no, it is, it is, he says, actually, it is the Antichrist to say that Jesus did not come in the flesh. He says that in 1 John and in 2 John. So the point is, there's, again, there, there's something really important about the fact that Jesus was a man and he died. He's emphasizing this over and over again. Uh, None of Jesus' bones were broken. It's a reference to Psalm 420, but that's also what was to be done to the Passover lamb. They were not to break any of the Passover lamb's bones. And so even though in John's gospel, it doesn't, they don't, Jesus doesn't, they don't talk about how Jesus celebrated the Passover. That's in the synoptic gospels before he went to the garden of Gethsemane. I mean, it kind of mentions they're doing a meal, but this is Jesus's greatest metaphor for what's happening. And John references it by saying that his bones were not broken. I bring all of this up to say that John is communicating something about why Jesus had to die. He's comparing him to the Passover lamb, the meal of the Passover. Let's just review what that meant. People of Israel were slaves. They were in Egypt. They were being oppressed. More bricks, less straw, and let's kill your babies whenever we want to, right? When Moses was a baby. It was a bad situation, right? God comes and leads Moses and says, we're going we're to set these people free. And God is pouring out judgment 
on the Egyptians because they won't turn to him and let the people go until this final judgment where he says, okay, if you don't let them go, I'm going to kill your firstborn. He tells the Jews, sacrifice a lamb and eat a meal together. Right? That's what the Passover is. If you're in our email updates, there's a Passover Seder happening that you can attend to experience that. Right? They're doing this to say, God, we're on your team. That's what the meal is representing. They're putting the blood on the doorpost to say, we are in relationship with you, God. And so we are not under your judgment, but we are being liberated and set free. And after they celebrate that meal that night, they are set free. God God releases them from slavery and delivers them from that house. That's the metaphor that Jesus is using to explain why he had to die. The book of Hebrews teases this out a little bit, right? Jesus, being fully God and fully man, is able to spill blood as a man and be an eternal sacrifice, a Passover lamb that we would be able to eat and have an eternal agreement between God and man, one of liberation and forgiveness. That is why Jesus died. He is the sacrifice that initiates a new covenant, an eternal covenant, an agreement between God and God as man. Right? Jesus is fully God and God is God. That makes sense. And he makes this agreement on man's behalf that lasts forever because he himself is eternal. And through that, the Gospel of John says right in the beginning, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the perfect lamb, the perfect Passover lamb that somehow, mysteriously, in his death, rearranges what the the relationship between, between God and people is, and that's now a relationship of open forgiveness for all who would believe in Jesus. That's the good news. It doesn't stop there. Because for the Jews, forgiveness of sins means liberation. It means return from exile. Those two concepts, as N.T. Wright explains, those two concepts are woven together in the Jewish mind. Meaning that it's not just this transaction between an individual and God, where, okay, God, I believe in Jesus. I don't want to go to hell. Please forgive me. That's not, that's not it. I mean, that's it, but that's not it. It's bigger than that. It's, it's a whole idea of, of exile being restored. This theme is all throughout the book of Matthew. You can, if, you, if you have that in your grid, when you re, if you ever read Matthew, it's exile, Jesus is bringing restoration. And that's what he is doing now. He is bringing restoration through a restored people who are restored in relationship to God to be the actual light of the world and to push the agenda of love all over the planet. That's the good news. Right? It's restored people who restore the earth. It's a healed people who bring healing to the earth. It's not just about me and Jesus. It's about community. It's about the world. It's about restoration Every sphere of every society, of every culture being redeemed and restored. That is what Jesus is doing. 
Forgiveness of sins means restoration from exile. He's restoring the planet. And somehow, mysteriously, his death does that. That is the good news. He takes away the sin of the world. He initiates a new agreement between God and man that is based on forgiveness and restoration for all that would call in the name of Jesus. But it doesn't just stop there. It gets better. Because in dying, in being hung on that cross, as I've said, he gains the access to death that allows him to defeat it. I'm sorry. I know it's next Sunday, but we have to talk about the resurrection now. If you read through the book of Acts, I went through like all the sermons in Acts just last night or this morning or something. I'm just like reading through like, what did they talk about this? That is the defining thing that they are preaching. We have lost that in evangelical Christianity. We've lost it. It's not the crucifixion that's the center point. It is the resurrection of Jesus that is the center of what we believe. If he didn't, if he wasn't raised, we are the most to be pitied, Paul says. It's that Jesus was raised from the dead and initiated a new creation, which those that call on his name They are a part of that. They become themselves a new creation, but that's just a piece of the larger new creation, the agenda of love, the agenda of restoration of the planet. It is just a seed when Jesus raises from the dead, but is now growing into an enormous tree. It was just a little bit of leaven that you put in that dough, and it's growing to fill the entire dough. Those are the metaphors that Jesus uses. It's the rock that strikes the kingdoms of this world that Daniel saw and grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. That is the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom. It's a country with no borders. It's a country with a different agenda. And it's one whose force, whose methods is love, which Jesus shows us ultimately on the cross. So, to summarize, why did Jesus die? To access death and to defeat it. And this, along with sin and the devil and sickness and every other result of of evil in the world, to defeat everything and initiate a victory over all darkness everywhere. He did it to be the true sacrifice, the real sacrifice, the covenant meal, the agreement between God and people that's an agreement of forgiveness that goes along with a promise of restoration. He did it to take away the sins of the world. And he did it to show us the love of God by submitting to the human condition and even violence and death on a cross. And he does it, as he says, when I am lifted up in the Gospel of John, I will draw all men to myself. He did it to draw all people into this new community of love, forgiveness, and restoration that is and will advance and fill this whole earth. That's the good news. Now, what does this mean for us today sitting here? Well, Jesus came so that we could know God. He came so that we could have eternal life which doesn't just mean you'll live forever after you die. It means you'll have the fullness of life here on this earth. It's, it's not just eternal in length. It's eternal in quality. The fullness of life, the fullness of joy 
on this earth now. I came that you would have life and have it to the full. I say these things, right, so that you would have joy. My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's knowing God that enacts that in our lives. Right? We saw earlier, when we, we quoted this passage in John that kind of summarizes the, whole, summarizes the whole mission of Jesus. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is knowing God. It is knowing the one who is truth, the one who is joy, the one who is peace, the one who is love. It fills our life with joy. It fills us with true life, with real life. So for some of you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're kind of investigating this Jesus thing, or you just came to church because someone invited you, understand this is what the Bible says about Jesus. Now there's a lot of investigation. Maybe, you know, was Jesus even a real person? Is the Bible true? There's a lot of questions you may have. But understand that this is what Jesus is about. When you look at Jesus, Jesus is saying, this is what God looks like. And I came, not just so you could see what God's like, but so that you could know him and know the life that he wants to give you. And know that Jesus' agenda is world domination. But it's a totally different backwards agenda of domination through love. Right? That goodness and love and all things evil and dark would be eradicated from this world. That's what Jesus is about. If you believe in Jesus, I think the challenge for you today is that whole life thing. You say, okay, I believe in Jesus. Why don't I feel like I'm having abundant life myself? Or what he says about that your joy may be full. I'm not experiencing that. The invitation from Jesus is that there's a deeper place of knowing God that he wants to bring you into. Because Jesus says right there, eternal life comes through knowing God, the one who is life, who is freedom, who is goodness. That's always his invitation. So if you're not feeling the fullness of life, there's the invitation. God is saying, come in to me. Think about what I have done. Reflect, meditate on my love. You know, this, this verse about the fullness of joy comes two verses after Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The fullness of joy in life in our lives, comes through understanding and getting this radical agenda of love that is even for you and me. There's nothing you've ever done that could stop God from loving you. There's nothing you can do to get him to love you more. He actually loves you as much as he loves Jesus. And Jesus loves you as much as God the Father loves him. He's inviting us into an amazing reality. And it's the renewing of our minds, the changing of the way we think, about God loving us that is going to unlock the joy in our lives. Because that's where joy really comes from, is knowing, giving, and receiving love. It's knowing that we're loved, and then turning around and giving that love to others. Let's have the band come back up as we respond. 
We're just going to open up this area in the front. We've got some carpets down here. If you want to respond to the Lord individually, this is also an invitation for the prayer team to come up. And if you want someone to pray with you, that would be awesome. This is also opening things up out there for you to go pray for somebody else. You're sensing there's a friend that was with you or asking someone else out there for prayer. So let's stand up. We are celebrating the crucifixion because of the resurrection. Jesus died so that you could have life. That is why he gave his life for you. And if you're not experiencing that currently, this is another step for you to engage with the Lord and say, Lord, what's holding it back? So I'm going to pray and then just invite you to come forward to receive prayer, come forward to pray with the Lord, pray for each other. Lord Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, reveal the character of God. Show us the goodness of Jesus, his agenda of love that will fill this earth. And Lord, even in our own lives, we want that love. We want that joy. We want the fullness of life. I just declare that that is God's will for your life. You, that is God's will for you. is the fullness of joy and abundant life. Lord, show us what steps we need to take as you invite us into deeper and deeper places in that, in Jesus' name.